Good morning. The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 22, and this is where Jesus um, spent his last supper with his disciples. So Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house where he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood for which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays me. They began to question among themselves, which of them it might be who would do this. Over the next couple of weeks, we're sort of turning our mind uh, to the events of Easter. And uh, today and and next week, we're reflecting on that evening uh, before uh, or as Jesus is arrested. And we're talking about the Lord's Supper, which is one of those things, if you come to church a lot, it's so familiar. And in fact, sometimes it can be so familiar, you sort of lose a sense of, or a sense of the detail. What are we actually celebrating? And so hopefully today uh, we can slow down for a moment 
and just reflect on what the Lord's Supper really means. So let me pray as we get into this passage. Dear Lord, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. As we read the events of the Last Supper, it's difficult to imagine the weightiness of the moment. So a week earlier, Jesus had entered Jerusalem to a cheering crowd. You know, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, it's exciting at times. And the disciples arrive with a sense of anticipation. And like thousands of others, they're there to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. And that festival included the Passover. But for Jesus, as he comes to this Passover meal, he knows that he is sitting down with his disciples for the last time before he is arrested and ultimately crucified. Uh, The Gospel of John uh, records in detail that last evening, but for Luke, the focus is really on the significance of what is about to come. And as we reflect on what Jesus is saying at this supper, I hope I can communicate uh, three things. Uh, A sense of fulfilment, uh, the significance of Jesus as the one true sacrifice, and then what does it mean for us to eat and drink in a manner worthy. So to understand the context of the Passover, we need to go back a little bit uh, to Israel and when they were slaves in Egypt. Okay, so we're going all the way back almost to the start of the Bible and they were slaves there for about 400 years. So the entire history of European settlement in Australia is about 225 years And this is a whole lot more than that. So for an Israelite living in Egypt, uh, this is all they have ever known. This is all their parents have ever known, all their grandparents, their great-great-great-great-grandparents have ever known. And life as a slave was brutal. Uh, The Egyptians had no problem uh, working their slaves to death. Uh, They had no problem killing babies to manage compliance. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, uh, God had promised Abraham that he would take his family and make them a great nation. But if you looked at Israel in Egypt, it would appear that that promise has been long forgotten. Until now. Uh, God sees the suffering of his people. He is faithful to his promises and now is the time to honour that promise. And so God chooses to work through Moses and he's been preparing Moses since almost the day he was born. And he would be God's ambassador to Pharaoh. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. So God sends one plague after the other. But nine plagues later... Pharaoh still refuses to listen and then God brings one final decisive act of judgment. I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
The blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. It's a bittersweet moment. For Israel, this is the moment that God will save them. But for Egypt, it means judgment. And it didn't have to come to this, but it has. And God will use it for his glory. And it's actually a restrained moment. If God had judged all the sin of Egypt, then no one would live. If God judged all the sin of Israel, then no one would live. But God is choosing to use this moment to bring Pharaoh to his knees. And Pharaoh finally agrees to let God's people go. And so in preparing to leave the Passover lamb, it was a symbolic substitute for that firstborn in each household. So the lamb was to be slaughtered, the blood was to be brushed onto the door frames, and it was a visual reminder of the judgment that the people deserved, but also of God's mercy. And that symbol of lamb is a substitute for the sins of Israel right through the Old Testament. And ultimately, as Tom said, to give away a bit of a spoiler, it all gets fulfilled in Christ. So as Jesus gathers with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover, there's a lot of history and a lot of symbolism as they remember God rescuing Israel. And Jesus uses this moment and the bread and the wine to point the disciples forward to an even greater salvation. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. So Jesus knows what is about to happen. Uh, This is the last meal that he will share before his arrest and his crucifixion. What's symbolised in this meal is achieved at the cross and we finally fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it's both present and future. It's present in the sense that Jesus, the eternal son of God, the king of kings, has shared with us in our humanity. It's present in the sense that his death and resurrection have paid the price for our sin. So the great threat of sin is dealt with. But the kingdom is also future. Uh, Because we are saved, Uh, we're no longer sinners, we're saints, but we still deal with and live with the sinfulness of life uh, and our sinfulness. And so there's still a hope for a better future, uh, for a perfected future. And a time will come when we will celebrate Christ as our Passover lamb with Christ. But dealing with our sin and overcoming death and securing our future does come at a price. And that's what we remember with the bread and the wine. He took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's not too hard to get the imagery of bread being broken and what Jesus endured on the cross as he's beaten and abused and crucified. Uh, But less obvious, I think, for us is the connection to the Passover. 
And so we get a, a glimpse of that connection in Deuteronomy. So talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, the writer says, Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. So for those who aren't really into bread making uh, or baking, uh, yeast, yeast, East, yeast is what makes bread rise. Uh, so when you think of the bread being broken, it's less like this, okay? That, that's sort of my happy place. Uh, and it's more like this. You know, it's more that sort of a flat bread. And in the context of Israel living in slavery, it's the bread of affliction because it's the sort of bread you make when you are living with uncertainty and persecution because you don't have the luxury all the security to take time preparing. Now, there's no time for a, you know, a 30-hour sourdough, and particularly now as they prepare to flee. You know, the original Passover meal was eaten with your sandals on, staff in hand, cloak tucked into your belt, ready to go. And we get that same sense of haste in the unleavened bread. And now at this Passover meal, Jesus takes that bread and he points it to himself. He will be afflicted and he will suffer at the hands of sinful men. And he'll be afflicted as he suffers for the sin of humanity. So his body broken as a substitute for our sin so that we might have life. Life free from the threat of judgment, free from the threat of death free from the slavery of sin. Uh, the image of the, the bread being broken, it's a, it's a tactile image, isn't it? It's very emotive. And we get that same sense of pain and relief with the wine. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And in many respects, uh, the wine and the blood are more familiar imagery. The Passover, the lamb was slain, the blood sprinkled on the doorframe. As part of the Old Testament sacrificial system, a lamb was slain and the blood was sprinkled on the altar. It was all symbolic of taking the price and the punishment of our sin. And now Jesus comes as the one true Lamb of God. So what's symbolic in the Old Testament becomes real with Jesus. He shares in our humanity, and so he becomes a genuine like-for-like substitute. So the writer to the Hebrews expresses it like this. He says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. And God's will is for Jesus to take our place and to suffer the consequences of our sin. But more than that, his death brings in a new way of God transforming hard hearts. 
Uh, the language of new covenant comes in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, a covenant is simply a promise, but here in the Old Testament, we read time and time again how Israel are unfaithful to that promise. Uh, they were still very religious, but in the words of Isaiah, these people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But now time is coming when God will move hearts. So Ezekiel says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And now Jesus is fulfilling that promise. His death, his resurrection, his ascension prepare the way for God to send his spirit. So in the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what Christ has done on the cross. But we're also remembering his faithfulness to his promises and what he will now do through his spirit. And it is a remembrance. The power of the Lord's Supper is not in the bread and the wine. It's what they represent. So we can't use participating in communion, or for that matter, baptism or coming to church, as a substitute for a genuine commitment to Christ. Now, if we learn anything from the Old Testament, God hates religion. He wants people to love him and love one another. So communion does not save us, but it can condemn us. As we take the bread and the wine, we are remembering Christ's sacrifice, but also acknowledging our acceptance of that sacrifice. It's not just that Christ died, but me accepting, me embracing that Christ died for me. And accepting Christ as saviour also means submitting to Christ as Lord. So it means letting go of our desire for control, letting go of our sin, letting go and allowing the Holy Spirit to do what it does best, moving hearts of stone to become hearts of flesh, uh, renewing minds to recognise God's good, pleasing and perfect will. Uh, I quite like uh, to surf. I'm not very good at it, but my, my, that, that's the farm uh, for anyone, uh, or killerly uh, f- uh, for others. Uh, and if, if you've ever f- surfed at the farm, you'll know that the best spot to go in is, is down near the car park uh, because there's this rip. And rips generally have a bad reputation. You generally stay out of rips. Uh, but when it comes to surfing, uh, they're really quite handy uh, because you, you jump in the water and you simply let the rip do its thing. Uh, It just takes you right out the back uh, to exactly where you want to be. Uh, And that's kind of like what the Spirit does for us. It doesn't take away from the fact that we we have a part to play. Uh, But the Spirit is the one guiding us and leading us to where we want to go as we seek to follow Christ. Uh, The point isn't to let go of personal responsibility, but so often we resist the Spirit because we want to hold on to sin and because we think that our our sin is attractive and our sin will satisfy and our sin will keep us happy. And as we follow Christ, he says, let it go and I will take you to a better 
place. But there's also a warning label that comes with communion. The Lord's Supper is a wonderful remembrance of God's grace. But if we are going to accept God's grace, then we need to honour the sacrifice behind that grace. And we show contempt for that sacrifice when we treat sin as sort of a, you know, a trivial, guilty pleasure and we treat repentance as sort of begrudging compliance. Yeah, I know I should be sorry, and so I will be sorry, but I'm struggling to actually mean it. And I think sometimes that's how we approach sin. You know, it's what we should do because it's you know, the right thing to do. And so the Apostle Paul says we need to examine ourselves uh, before we come together for the Lord's Supper. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. We can never be perfect, and so we're never going to come to the Lord's Supper perfectly. But we do need to come with a genuine desire to honour Christ and a genuine thankfulness for his sacrifice. And part of that genuineness is coming with some genuine self-reflection and repentance. Uh, that self-reflection might reveal something self-evident. If you're having you know, sex with someone who's not your husband and wife, that's a sin. If you are bullying or stealing or lying, uh, they're, they're sin. Uh, they're probably easier to recognise. But sometimes our sin is less evident. It's in the way we treat those who we feel are less socially able than ourselves or less intellectually able. Uh, perhaps we're gossips, uh, but we mask it in the name of concern. Or perhaps it's the way we speak and the way we say a bit too much truth in jest. Or maybe it's just the subtle, selfish choices to always preference our needs over those around us. Uh, perhaps it's being judgmental. In the context of 1 Corinthians, the problem was how the wealthy were humiliating the poor when they came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So ironically, uh, what is supposed to be a celebration of God's mercy and their unity together has become an excuse for sin and a cause of division. And so as we come together for communion each month, uh, we should examine ourselves. Uh, is our life honouring Christ's sacrifice for us? And part of that self-examination is to consider how we're honouring our fellowship together. You know, next week, uh, we will be sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And in preparation, can I encourage you to do two things? Firstly, can I encourage you to do some personal, honest self-reflecting? Are there particular sins in our life that we are leaving unaddressed? And most often, we leave them unaddressed because we don't want to let them go. Is there a sin like that in your life? And if there is... Uh, then we need to acknowledge that before God. We need to repent. We need to turn away from it. And if we fall into it again, uh, then we acknowledge it, we repent, we turn away from it. And God in his mercy is patient with us. 
The second uh, is more of a relational self-reflection. Is there a conflict in my life that I've left unaddressed? You know, the focus in this passage is talking about how Christians are relating to other Christians, uh, but we don't need to limit that reflection to that. Is there any relationships in our life where there is conflict that we are not dealing with? Now, I don't want to diminish uh, the difficulty and the profound pain that comes with conflict. And so often, as we feel hurt, we feel it's the other person who has hurt us. But can I encourage us that we might have the courage and pray that we might have the courage and the conviction to actually address our sin uh, and to address their sin against us and to actually seek reconciliation uh, for their sake, uh, for the sake of their godliness, but also for our sake and the sake of our godliness. Uh, The context is slightly different, but Jesus says it like this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So between now and next week, uh, is there a conflict that you need to address? Uh, It might not be resolvable in a week. It might never be resolvable. Uh, But have you, have I, done everything in our power to deal with our sin and to pursue peace? Uh, So as we share in communion, just to close, it's a wonderful remembrance of God's faithfulness to his promises and Christ's sacrifice to us. And so let's honour that sacrifice by coming genuinely committed to turning away from the sin that made that sacrifice necessary in the first place. Let me pray. Dear Lord, as we remember the events of that Last Supper, as we remember uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, we are reminded of your goodness and mercy and grace, uh, that you would die for us so that we can have life. And so, Lord, I pray as we come each time uh, that we might come honouring that sacrifice. Uh, seeking to love you and seeking to live in peace with those around us. Amen.